1: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like spots, scans
0: and lasers. Oh, I I want to do the history of spots.
1: (laughs) I want to do lasers.
0: I, I... I think we should do both of them. They, they sound terrific. However, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of betrayal, which we've done very recently, is in fact all about Russian spies during the Cold War, or that the history of bullies is all about politics in the reign of Henry
1: VIII. The man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, he will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world. He's one of the country's leading professors of history. It's
0: James Daybell. Hi, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, because we are once again in lockdown and homeschooling, is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis, off of the telly. Hello, Sam. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. hello.
1: Um, This is another episode in our special series of
0: homeschooling for kids,
1: but also uh, keen learning adults as well. In each episode, what we do is take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history, and we prove that it does. And today, I'm very excited about this, we're doing the extraordinary history of ribbons, which of course is all about orphans in Georgian and Victorian Britain. But before we reveal that connection, I think we need to think about brainstorming how else we might think about the history of ribbons. James, what came to your
0: mind? Oh, well, for me, ribbons were all about opening ceremonies. They're about grand openings, you know, nice. the kinds of things yeah. where you have you have a ribbon across a ship, and some very important person comes along with a pair of scissors and cuts the ribbon. Uh, in heart. so it mm-hmm. it's for opening ceremonies at large events like the World Cup, um, the Olympic Games. You know, even opening a, a sort of a local shop or something like that. So it make it makes things very sort of grand. Ribbons are also about commemoration. Um, so if you think about wearing black armbands or black ribbons as a sign of your yeah, you know, your your grief or your respect for somebody who has been who's who's passed. Um the use of ribbons to mark uh the fallen during war as well, um and the use of re- yellow ribbons uh in America um when um you know troops came back um from war. Uh, to to sort of commemorate the service that they they'd had, so it's also signifying a cause. You know, so we think about the ribbons that people wear today, whether it be rainbow ribbons, whether it be breast cancer awareness, whether it be um, ribbons that are you know that symbolise an awareness of of the plight of AIDS sufferers, uh, for example. So you know, so a whole range of ways of looking at ribbons with different sort of multiple meanings there
1: yeah fascinating
0: and it's worth thinking
1: about how and why the ribbon uh came to be significant uh, why people do it with ribbons basically Um, and it all goes back to i think the 17th century and beyond certainly in the 17th century ribbons basically take over the fashion world the ribbons are attached to all sorts of accessories to gloves bonnets everything is attached with ribbons um and also for clothing, uh, braiding and curling hair, ornamenting furniture and um, brightening up linens. So a very important decorative um, decorative thing, which was used to make to make um, all sorts of soft furnishings and clothing more more beautiful. And it's worth thinking about how and why this came about in the first place. The ribbon industry, of course, springs from the silk trade, which I know all about. And you've got merchants travelling the Silk Road. They're travelling from Asia to Europe, from China to Europe. And what they do is they sell silk to middlemen, who then boil it, clean it, dye the ribbon yarn, and then they sell it in in uh, something called twists. To weavers. So those weavers then use specially um, created looms and often lots and lots of of labourers working by hand to create uh, beautiful um, handmade and then later on machine made ribbons. And those products themselves are sold in major cities. They're sold uh, into the export trade. And there's a huge demand for ribbon uh, at this period, particularly in the 17th century. In fact, there's so much demand to have something beautiful, to have something exotic, that it was one of the sparks of the Industrial Revolution. Um, They... uh, the the need to create so much ribbon led to the development of a Dutch loom, the Dutch engine loom, in which six types of ribbon could actually be produced simultaneously under the watchful eye of just one operator. That was in the 1770s. So just think about that, the need for ribbons, very ancient, the desire to have something exotic, to have something silk from miles away like China, and then the huge demand for that leading to inventors creating new looms to be able to produce things so so quickly. And you end up with um, um, uh, places that become very famous for it, particularly Coventry in England and Lyon in France, become hubs of ribbon design and generation for the West. Um, uh, James, I have a particular interest in ribbons, um, in metal ribbons also, because I have one um, uh, in our family, which is my um, grandfather 's military cross that he won in the second World War that has a very distinctive sort of silvery and purple uh, ribbon attached to the medal um, That one has actually got a history i 've not been able to find out about it because usually the reasons for the coloring of the ribbons are symbolic. One of the most obvious ones um, uh, in in this regard is the mon's star which was given to soldiers in the First World War who served in France or Belgium from very specifically from the 5th of August 1914, so the summer of 1914, which is the declaration of the First World War, to midnight on the 22nd of November of the same year. So a very short period, and that's the end of the First Battle of Ypres. And the med- the ribbon on that medal is very specifically the French tricolore to show that those soldiers had been fighting in France, um, a very key period of the war, and primarily most people who got them were actually soldiers of the British Expeditionary Force. Another example of a symbolically uh, charged ribbon colour is the Allied Victory Medal, um, again for the First World War. And uh it was a, a given with a, a double rainbow at the centre and the combination of the colours was um, specifically chosen to signify the variety of allied nations. I thought that the what you were saying there about um, ribbons, people wearing ribbons today, um, people wearing uh, rainbow ribbons, James, for LGBTQ. Um, and here a similar sort of thing from the First World War demonstrating so many different people all working together for one cause. Um, so there's a fascinating history there. And actually, one before I, I stop talking about medals, um, fascinating stuff. Um, if, if you're interested in them, they're brilliant because each giving of a medal, particularly things like the Military Cross, and the Victoria Cross, has a wonderful, wonderful story behind it. So uh, it's excellent stuff for historians to get their teeth into. Nonetheless, today we are actually going to be talking about ribbons, particularly in relation to how they can help us understand the history of Georgian and Victorian orphans. And we're looking at this uh, through the lens of something known as the Foundling Hospital. I'm going to start by reading something out. This is um, a quote from someone called Robert Cox, who was, this is a modern quote, a 20th century quote, and he formerly had been at this uh, institution known as the Foundling Hospital. I was taken up to the picture gallery, And Mr Nichols, the school secretary, wanted to see me before I went into hospital. Beside the pictures on the wall were two or three showcases. There was nothing to say what it was, but I knew instantly what it was. There was all little tokens in there. Bits of ribbon, bits of lace, buttons, bits of material, bits of tickets, coins. I knew instantly that these were things that mothers had left to be able to identify their child by. I suppose they all hoped at some stage. I was, I was just transfixed by this. I kept wondering what my mother had left with me. Not realising at that stage that that system had finished years before. It was just a heart-breaking moment. Mmm, very mysterious. What's
0: going on here then, James? Well, Sam, we're talking about orphans during the 18th and 19th century here. So the Georgian period and the Victorian period. And we're talking there about a former pupil of the Foundling Hospital. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to, first of all, explain about the background of the Foundling Hospital, and then I'm going to relate it in particular to tokens and ribbons. So, first of all, it's worth thinking about definitions of foundling. And foundling is a historic term uh, that is applied to children, normally babies, who've been abandoned by parents and discovered and cared for by others. And the Foundling Hospital, which continues today as the children's charity Coram, was established in the early 18th century in 1739 by the philanthropist Thomas Coram in London to care for babies at risk of abandonment. Now this Thomas Coram lived between 1668 and 1751. And he spent a long time in America uh, during the late seventeenth uh, century, and in seventeen o four after eleven years in America, he comes back to london and This is a period when London is really in that sort of proto industrialization phase so it 's not quite the industrial industrial revolution but it 's that sort of period before that that we can see some of the sort of vestiges, some of the characteristics. ...of the Industrial Revolution coming into being. London is a powerhouse of industry, invention, wealth and global trade is centred there. But also, there are all sorts of negative things about it. It's noisy, it's polluted, there is desperate poverty, it's disease-ridden. And in particular, the situation for children was really bleak... And there are soaring mortality rates during this period. So he's he's deeply shocked by what he sees, and he sees parents who are simply unable to look after their babies, uh, either because they are they're, they're they're too poor to look after them, they simply can't afford to have another mouth to feed, or they are illegitimate. So you find you know certain women who find themselves unmarried and pregnant. There's such social stigma against them uh, for being pregnant that they feel they have no option other than to abandon their children in the street, literally lying you know, in the gutter. Um, and estimates of historians uh, think that there are about a thousand babies a year that were abandoned in London. And Coram was deeply shocked by this and thought that there needed to be a campaign to do something really practical. And he spent 17 years campaigning and finally received a royal charter from the king at the time, uh, George II, in 1739, which allowed him to set up a foundling hospital in London um, to care for and educate Vulnerable children, Um, and he's helped along this by various sort of individuals who are fairly well known: William Hogarth, uh, the the artist and the composer George Friedrich Handel. Um, And one of the interesting things is that, as well as it being an institution for uh, the the care of children, it's also a cultural centre. So there is music put on, Uh, Handel donates an organ and there are annual concerts of the Messiah in the hospital's chapel. Uh, There's also uh, an art gallery set up and Hogarth persuades leading uh, artists to uh, donate uh, some of their work. So this enables, through this sort of philanthropy, to actually generate an institution that is culturally really rich but also that looks after, you know, very uh, disadvantaged people. And from about 1741, uh, the first babies were admitted to the hospital. And this practice went on to about 1954, when the last pupil uh, was placed in in foster care. And it's estimated that over this long period, some 25,000 children were looked after uh, by the hospital. Um, and the museum uh, of the hospital exists today. It was opened in two thousand and four. Uh, it's in Forty Brunswick Square uh, in London, uh, which was constructed in the nineteen thirties on the site. Uh, and it and it, it there are many of the original features of the eighteenth century building. Now, here is the connection to ribbons, because in seventeen forty one, when the hospital, uh, you know first throws open its doors, when mothers were leaving their children, they had to, I quote, affix on each child some particular writing or other distinguishing mark or token so that the children may be known thereafter it's necessary. In other words, um, babies which were renamed on admission, there needed to be some system by which a mother returning and wanting to have back her child could identify the child, and what women did um, in the first few decades was actually give a little piece of their clothing, a little swatch of their clothing uh, from a, a dress that could then be attached to the child's documents when they were uh, uh, when they were admitted, and then that would be used later on to identify the child and so what we have is a whole collection. Of eighteenth century tokens, and among them are ribbons, the kinds of things that you were describing in the um, in the quote that you had at the very beginning of this and This custom of leaving tokens with babies means that we 've got an incredibly rich array of material connected to clothing, connected to emotion, that really gets at the sort of relationship between a mother and child and this custom. Uh, lasted until the 1960s, when instead receipts were were introduced. So paper receipts were introduced. But there are still mothers who left tokens. So it's estimated that in the collection of the Foundling Hospital, in the museum there, they have about 18,000 examples of these. And if you go online and Google, a wonderful tool, Google, go online and google foundling hospital tokens and put ribbons in there you will see some spectacular examples of beautiful coloured ribbons that actually allow you to look at the emotional relationship between mother and and child who's been given up as an orphan so there we are Sam uh, the foundling good. hospital And the token system.
1: Um, So I want to take this just a little bit further to look at Thomas Coram himself. He's a fascinating, fascinating character. And to try and get a sense of the man, um, Lord Walpole described him, this is in April 1735, as the honestest, most disinterested, most knowing person about the plantations he had ever talked with. It's interesting, that link with the plantations. Um, Coram himself... um, he I believe he was a, his father was a master mariner and Coram himself became very much involved with the sea so he's traveled around a lot and he gets really bothered by the state of um, social life in 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 London in particular, which is why he establishes the Foundling Hospital. But he also does a lot of work with Native Americans when he's he's in America. He particularly gets concerned about the education of Native American girls. So he's a very well-travelled man and uh, he's extremely, extremely thoughtful um, and caring and understanding. But I think one of the best ways of actually getting a sense of who he was is to uh, sort of listen to his own words. So what we've got here is a bit of Coram's petition to the king. This is the actual, uh, the letter that he wrote to the king explaining why they needed a foundling hospital.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early,
1: whereas among the many excellent designs and institutions of charity which this nation and especially the city of london has hitherto encouraged and established no expedient has yet been found out for preventing the frequent murders of poor miserable infants at their birth or for suppressing the inhuman custom of exposing newborn infants to perish in the streets, or the putting out such unhappy foundlings to wicked and barbarous nurses, who, undertaking to bring them up for a small and trifling sum of money, do often suffer them to starve for want of due sustenance or care, or, if permitted to live, either turn them into the streets to beg or steal or hire them out to loose persons by whom they are trained up in that infamous way of living, and sometimes are blinded or maimed and distorted in their limbs in order to move pity and compassion, and thereby become fitter instruments to gain to those vile, merciless wretches." For a beginning to redress so deplorable a grievance and to prevent as well the effusion of so much innocent blood as the fatal consequences of that idleness, beggary or stealing in which such poor foundlings are generally bred up and to enable them by an early and effectual care of their education to become useful members of the commonwealth we whose names are underwritten being deeply touched with compassion for the sufferings and lamentable condition of such poor abandoned helpless influence as well as the enormous abuses and mischiefs to which they are exposed and in order to supply the government plentifully with useful hands on many occasions and for the better producing good and faithful servants from amongst the poor and miserable cast off children or foundlings now a pest to the public and a chargeable nuisance within the bills of mortality. And for settling a yearly income for their maintenance and proper education till they come to a fit age for service are desirous to encourage and willing to contribute towards erecting an hospital for infants whom their parents are not able to maintain and who have no right to any parish, which we conceive will not only prevent many horrid murders, cruelties and plain of, provided due and proper care to be for setting on foot, so necessary an establishment and a royal charter be granted by the King to such persons, as His Majesty shall approve of, who shall be willing to become benefactors for the erecting and endowing such an hospital and for the receiving the voluntary contributions of charitable and well-disposed persons, and for directing and managing the affairs thereof gratis to the best advantage under such regulations as his majesty in this great wisdom shall judge most proper for attaining the desired effect of our good. Intentions. I think, James, that's a wonderful, wonderful letter. It starts off by explaining just the, the true horrors of actually what's going on. I mean, children, infants being left to die, being uh, put out, as he says there, but also this suggestion of sometimes children being blinded, maimed or distorted in their limbs in order to move pity. So those are kids being essentially tortured to make them physically uh, less less able, physically um, you know, uh, eye-catching so that others will give them money and pass it on to those people who are controlling these children very shocking indeed it also makes you realize the extent of the the problem that he's actually coming to grips with and the difficulties of setting up at the expense of setting up such a hospital Um, so very very powerful letter indeed there
0: Absolutely. And what what I'm going to talk about now is a little bit about the social problems of the time uh, from the sort of Georgian period when, and in particular in the Victorian period. But one of the interesting things about the work that Coram did and the charity that he set up is that the project itself was really influential. So it's not just the good that he's doing in the hospital as a sort of form of philanthropy, but it's also the blueprint that he set up that inspired other humanitarian organisations. And if you have a look in the next century, in the 19th century, you've got a whole range of individuals who start doing similar things. So Mary Carpenter with her Institutions for Destitute and Erring Children. Probably best known is Dr. Bernardo with his famous Village Homes. Edward de Montjoy Rudolph um, who founded the Waifs and Strays Society, now called the Children's Society, in 1881? So, in, and in the 1880s, there's a real sort of push for educational and, and philanthropic achievement uh, that historians have pointed out. Um, you know, and this is when the Waifs and Strays Society is 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 comes into being. But there are a whole series of social problems uh, at the time, and these are created by the burgeoning economic growth because the Industrial Revolution that we have, the industrialization that we have in the the first few decades of the nineteenth century, is is very good in economic terms you know england is very much in the sort of powerhouse of of industrialization the problem is that this leads to all sorts of issues and problems that the government simply fails to address partly because the government isn't able to to deal with them i mean they're in a very sort of new territory here Towns are expanding very, very rapidly and one of the problems is that public health and maintaining social order um, become real issues and there aren't mechanisms in place to deal with them. So I think the very, to think about this in a very simple way is that if you think about the beginning of the 19th century, you have certain sort of civic institutions and local political institutions that are set up to oversee much smaller administrative units but then everything grows things become much more complicated there are all there's social um, you know dislocation social problems and those institutions just aren't capable of dealing with it. So, for example, we've got population growth and urbanization, which basically means that there is massive crowding of large numbers of people in towns and cities. It's fine for the wealthy middle class who are out in the leafy suburbs or trades and crafts people who are in their Neat terraced houses, but for the vast majority of people who are coming out of the countryside into the towns, they are living in overcrowded, cramped tenement dwellings. These are really rough and ready houses. You know, you you have examples of entire families in one room, very basic facilities, limited water supply, really primitive sanitation. You know, so no proper sort of draining drainage system. And we've talked in the past about, about those sort of issues. If you go back and have a look at some of our previous homeschooling around the the Victorians and the issues around there about water supply and cholera and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so there are, there are various sort of problems created by poor living conditions, health problems, um, disease, cholera, all that sort of thing. There's also an absence of a system of local government, um, which basically means that there is a worsening of social problems. You know, so the problem here is that with with this sort of growth of urbanisation, the growth of cities, um, many of the old boroughs had either declined or expanded into large towns, but are still run by a mayor or corporation. And these individuals or these bodies become corrupt they act in their own self-interest and there's little um, little real interest for them to introduce improvements. Because ultimately, you know, politicians introduce things partly because they want to serve the civic good, but also they want to be voted in. And where you have voting systems that don't quite, you know, match, there's a real problem there. So there are problems in terms of lighting, drainage, water supply, sanitation transport. There's no town planning uh, to control the quality of development or even where people are building. So none of that is controlled. And that, again, exacerbates the problems. If we turn to look at the workplace, you know, this is also detrimental to the health of the population. If you think about the way and the conditions in which people work. Men, women, children are cooped up in really poorly ventilated factories sometimes for up to 16 hours a day six days a week for a pittance they're paid wages are really you know really small for these people there's an absence of safety regulations we live in a time where health and safety has run riot um (laughs) there is a high incidence of accidents during the victorian period much of the work in factories is done by women and children because they're cheaper they're more easy to manage small children with small fingers that are that can get into machines and pull things out you know are very useful and of course this risks serious injury um there's widespread use of orphan children as well as you were talking about earlier on Sam who are exploited during this period and as people probably know you know child labor was not a new phenomenon um but proliferated during the this industrial industrial period and this is really what draws the sort of philanthropic and humanitarian attention towards these children. There's also a lack of education for which disadvantages the working class. There's no proper state provision for children's schooling. Um, And during this period, education is still very much an upper class and middle class preserve. And it's thought that it was socially dangerous for people lower down the social scale uh, to have education because there was a fear about that this would encourage revolutionary thinking. Um, Sunday schools did exist, um, but this is really about teaching the children scriptures and removing the sort of, you know, giving them sort of basic literacy. Um, but there's no sort of there's no need or obligation to attend this um so we're in a we're in a sort of really sort of difficult situation here and what happens with no safety net? What happens for people who are unemployed and can't find jobs? what happens for people who become sick and can't work who are disabled or are too old to work it's a period where those individuals uh, live in grinding poverty and the system of poor relief is unable to cope with this large-scale urbanisation and this flood of workers from the land, from agriculture into the cities. Uh, So this is really the sort of background uh, that we're that we're talking about here. What 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 do you do in this situation if you can't feed yourself? You either beg on the streets, or I suppose the other opportunity is to is to turn to crime. So there we are. They're, these are some of the sort of social problems that the Victorians had to grapple with uh, in Britain. Right, James. Thank
1: you so much for that background. I think time for a quiz to see if you've all been paying attention. Number one: Who was Thomas Coram? Number two. In what year was his hospital founded? Number three. Why did Thomas Coram feel the need to found a hospital?
0: Number four. What was the significance of ribbons or tokens left by mothers with their babies?
1: Number five. In what ways was the foundling hospital associated with culture
0: and the arts? Oh, that's a good one. Now, number six, last but not least, what impact did industrialisation have on social conditions in Georgian and Victorian England? Very good. And do we have a task for our homeschoolers as well, James? We We do have a task, Sam. And this is another writing task. Now, imagine that you are a mother of a foundling. You're forced to leave your child in the care of Coram's hospital. What we'd like you to do is to write a letter... To your child for them to read when they're old enough, explaining your circumstances, why you were compelled to give them away and how you felt about it. So that's a task that really gets you thinking about the plight and situation from the mother's point of view. Really interesting task there. Yes, I'd like to do that myself. Um, Excellent. I, I shall mark it when you're
1: ready for I bet you've wanted me to do that for ages. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, Thank you all so much for listening, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it. We're very much enjoying doing our homeschooling episodes. Please check out all of the other homeschooling episodes uh, in our back catalogue as well. Um, Please follow me on social media. I'm at
0: Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. And you can find out all about the previous episodes on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. Great stuff, guys. We'll be with you again soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.